You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Anil Seth, author of Being You, A New Science of Consciousness. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This idea of controlled hallucination, I think the important thing to emphasize about this is these metaphors of hallucination and waking dreams and so on, they're a bit limited because they can encourage the idea that there's no such thing as objective reality, that it's all sort of made up in our minds. But of course, you know, our brains are material things anyway. So if that's the case, then what's doing the making up, it becomes a little bit inconsistent. But anyway, that's not what I'm saying or what anybody with a similar idea is saying, that there is a real world out there, but it is not the same world that we experience. And this is a point in philosophy that goes back as at least as far as Immanuel Kant and probably back to Plato, that the world as it is, Kant called it the noumenon, can never be directly apprehended by our minds. We are shielded from it by what he called a sensory veil. For instance, there are no such thing as colors that actually are out there in the world. Colors, as the artist Cezanne said, the colors is where the brain and the universe meet. And color is, I think, a really good example because it is, in a sense, less than what's there because our eyes are only sensitive to three wavelengths of this huge electromagnetic spectrum, which goes all the way from x-rays and gamma rays to radio wave and we live in a tiny thin slice of that reality but then out of those three wavelengths we experience our brains generate many more than three colors and almost an infinite palette of colors so there's no sense in which our perception could ever reveal the world as it really is that it reveals the world in a way that's very useful for us as organisms hell-bent on continuing to live and to survive. Storytelling is a distinctively human thing, although I always worry a little bit about saying something is distinctively human, and then we later find out that many other creatures do it as well. But it's certainly something that in human culture and society, we value very highly. And it is not just something we do, it's something we are. Part of what it is to be a self is the story that our brains and minds tell our brains and minds about ourselves. That is part of the self. That This is the string of memories and the plans for the future that together constitute part of our personal identity. They're not something the self does, they're something the self is. And part of that is also social. So part of my plans, part of my memories, part of my sense of self is refracted through the minds of those around me. I notice this in daily life when I've got a pretty bad memory myself of things that happened in my life. And when I'm with friends that I've known for decades, they will often remember things that happened to me or that we were together at the same time better than I do. And at these times, it really seems true. My sense of self of who I am is partly in the minds of my friends, or rather it's in the interaction between my friends and me. And for increasingly large numbers of us, our memories are in our phones. And so <laughs> there's a case to be made that part of the self is now technology, as my colleague at Sussex, Sandy Clark, has been arguing for a long time with this idea of the extended mind. And the boundaries of the mind aren't the skull. They can be much further than that, further afield, depending on the systems we use, the people we live with, and the environments that we're in. There's a lot of worry about conscious machines. Will AI develop to a point where suddenly the lights come on and we not only have systems around us that are intelligent, but that are also aware and capable of suffering, but also capable of doing things that might be, I don't know, malevolent somehow. I think this is an idea born mainly of science fiction and dystopian fiction than reality. And I think it's just based on some fundamentally flawed assumptions, most obvious being consciousness and intelligence. There's this assumption 
in a lot of the writing about this, certainly a lot of the discourse, that consciousness and intelligence are very, very closely related, or even aspects of the same thing, so that if an AI becomes sufficiently intelligent, then consciousness just comes along for the ride. But intelligence and consciousness are completely different things. We may put them together because we still have this latent or residual human exceptionalism, where we think we are smart and we know we're conscious, so we like to link the two together. And over history, people have done that. And Descartes in the 17th century did this most aggressively reserving consciousness really for this notion of the rational, intelligent, immaterial mind that other animals didn't have. But understanding consciousness more broadly as perception, perceptual experience of the world and the self within it highlights that much of our conscious experience has to do with the body, has to do with emotion, mood. And you don't have to be particularly smart, even by questionable human standards, to be conscious in this way. In the book, I end up with a position, an argument, that consciousness is much more closely tied to our nature as living machines, flesh and blood creatures, than it is to our form of intelligence. And so by these lights, a conscious AI is not really around the corner. A conscious computer would have to be a living computer, and that's not the direction things are going. But there's still a lot to be worried about. We're almost at the stage where we have these machine learning algorithms like ChatGPT, which can play on our anthropomorphic tendencies and convince us that there's a mind there, even though all that's going on is just statistics under the hood. And that's dangerous if we live in a world where we feel like we're interacting with other conscious minds, even though we know we are not. And that's quite disruptive. Sometimes we can't help feeling these kinds of things in a sort of way that if we have a visual illusion, we might know that it's an illusion, but we still can't help seeing the illusion. Like two lines might look the same length and we know they're different lengths, but we still see them as the same length. We might face something similar with AI, that we know what's going on under the hood is just statistics running on silicon. We nonetheless feel it's conscious because of the way our mind works, not because of the way its system works. I think this is one of the challenges we really face is we, we have been already for hundreds of years redefining what it means to be human as our environment changes, both our natural environment, our social environment and our technological environment. And we can see this now accelerating with the increasingly rapid development of technologies that compete with us, that work with us, that interface with us, that we depend on and that manipulate us. And the machine learning is a good example. We have these chatbots now that we can hold fairly boring conversations with, but we can hold conversations with them. Now, one of my mentors, a philosopher called Daniel Dennett, in many of the very wise things he said was one thing, which was about AI. And he said, with regard to artificial intelligence, we must always remember that we are building tools and not colleagues. I think this is useful to bear in mind because it's a way of guarding against this anthropomorphism that we just talked about. There's a problem here, even with the term artificial intelligence, something that's always annoyed me a little bit. The term, which dates back to the 1950s, really encourages us to see these systems as colleagues rather than tools. It gives them a sense of entity, an agency that hides or glosses over, diverts us from the recognition that they're just statistics. If we think of them as tools, then I think we are likely to be able to foster a more complementary relationship with these systems. Like chatbots, they're not going to be the same as us, but we already are finding how they can be useful in terms of providing better forms of search engines, for instance, writing form, pro forma letters that always have a structure. And at the moment, it's threatening because we don't know how it's going to work and what it's going to disrupt. But I think we'll find a way that these things will be useful, but we'll only get there if we remember this essential distinction between building something that we will learn how to use and interact with rather than building something that we wrongly project a mind into.
I think the fundamental thing here is we all experience the world differently. And this doesn't need a condition to be slapped on it. There's diversity between all of us. And this is actually something that's related to the Dream Machine project that we'll talk about in a minute, but it, it has its own life too. And we at least recognize the existence of alternative forms of experiencing the world in the self under the banner of what's been called neurodiversity. And this is often associated with things like autism or ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. But then psychosis as well is a different way of experiencing the world. Synesthesia, where people experience the mixing of the senses and colors may have shapes and so on. Another way, but perceptual differences purely in terms of these nameable conditions, I think can lead us to the false idea that when we are not under the banner of one of these conditions, that we experience the world as it is and the same way that everybody else does. We are, in quotes, neurotypical. And of course, there's really no such thing, just as we're all different in height and in skin color and body shape and so on, just as we all differ on the outside, we're all going to differ on the inside too. It's just that not a lot is known about this because unlike differences in height and skin color and so on, the inner differences that we have, let's say in how we experience color or the flow of time, these differences are private and subjective. And unless they're large, they don't surface into our behavior or language. And furthermore, it seems to us that we see the world just as it is. It doesn't seem to be that it's dependent on my own brain in a particular way. So these factors conspire to encourage us to neglect the diversity that may well exist between all of us. The Dream Machine is quite ambitious collaboration between scientists, me and others in my group at Sussex, philosophers as Fiona McPherson in Glasgow, but then also architects and musicians and engineers and designers and all sorts. It's a project that uses stroboscopic light experienced on closed eyes to bring about powerful visual experiences in the minds of people who are there. It's based on a very old phenomenon. So the original Dream Machine was developed by an artist called Brian Geisen in the 1950s. And it was a very simple, charmingly lo-fi contraption where there was just a bright bulb hanging over a turntable. Turntable would spin. There'd be a cardboard tube placed around the bulb with some slits cut in it so that you'd get this basic stroboscopic flickering effect. And he noticed that people sitting in front of it with their eyes closed had really quite powerful visual hallucinations, colors and shapes and all sorts of things. And Geisen, in designing it, had worked with a neuroscientist called William Gray Walter, whose work I knew about. It was collective. It is collective, I should say, because it will happen again. It's not over yet. So what would happen is groups of people would come into a space. We tended to use underutilized buildings. So a public market in London, a deconsecrated church in Belfast, an ice rink during summer in Edinburgh, and a temple in Cardiff. Each building was semi-converted for a few weeks, and within each building was this space, sort of a large blue wooden box, which was the dream machine. And people would go in after some time, get settled, and as a group, 20 or 30, there would be a session, and they would experience strobe lights, which you carefully designed to be effective, but also safe. People would have whatever experience they had, and in the dream machine, everybody has their own distinctive experience. And then they would leave and come out and we had this reflection zone where people would hang about and often they would hang about for quite a long time and they would draw, write, um, fill in this survey that we had on a little interactive tablet thing, talk about what they experienced, connect with others. And overall, we had about 35 to 40,000 people experience the Dream Machine last year across these four cities in the UK, which is a vast number. 
you know, because it's quite intensive for each person. But I've never been involved in anything like this before because the art science collaboration was so built in from the beginning. It's often a little bit superficial, like let's have a scientific gloss on this arts project or let's collect some data from it. But here, the design of it, the realization of it, every aspect of it involved the science and the philosophy. So it was very, very rewarding. And its impact has been huge. I mean, people, honestly, people loved it. We had so many positive reports and people would come back time and time again and tell us how it often sometimes transformed their lives, helped them through periods of intense grief and so on. And it's not just the flickering lights here. It's the whole setting, I think, that's important. But it's unexpected for most people. You go in, you sit down, you close your eyes, and then something magical happens. And when people come out, one of the most common things that they would say, and we would encourage them to think about this, reflect on it, is the power of their own brains and minds. It really ignited in many people a curiosity and a sense of war for what their brains do that challenged this idea that we all have that we've talked about a bit today that it's so easy to take our conscious minds and ourselves for granted that we open our eyes and there the world is. What happens in the dream machine is that you realize, that, oh, my brain is doing this. It's generating all this stuff. And if it's generating in the dream machine, then it's probably doing something pretty important in the rest of my life too. And so I hope the long-term legacy of this is, among other things, to have sparked the future interest and perhaps the future career of many new budding neuroscience philosopher artists out there. If you've enjoyed listening to these highlights, to listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.